Hi, everybody. I'm Kevin O'Donoghue, licensed New York State mental health counselor. And I'm Nasima Diane Deemer, trauma specialist and licensed massage therapist. And this is The Positive Mind. Where we bring you some ideas, concepts, and guests. Help you lead a more positively-minded life. And we're in the holiday season. It is full-on, Nasima. Winter is here. Winter is here. It's colder than last year, that's for sure. Here in New York, uh, it's gray. It's been gray. So uh, anyway, uh, I just had to mention that. You know, the, the cold, nothing wakes you up like the cold. Right. So, so we are in December, and we're going to make a connection to December and the holidays in December to our show today, later in the show. Um, so we're looking forward to that. But we have a great show ahead. We wanted to thank again Howard and Miriam Steele, who were our guests on the last two shows. Two very important shows. You know, there are maybe five major topics in psychology. Uh, you know, I'm trying to get this top three, you know. Is sexuality like a top? No, it's not, frankly, <laughs> in psychology. Um, but some at one period in our development as psychologists and therapists, sexuality might have been like on the top of the list. But Howard and Miriam Steele were here last two weeks talking about attachment and about children and, and attachment. And this idea that s most children uh, grow up feeling securely attached, most. But there's about 25, 30% that feel insecurely attached. And that has ramifications for their whole life, whole life. And so about a year ago, we did a show on attachment called The Strange Situation, uh, talking about a you know, process that was done in the 70s with Mary Ainsworth, where uh, a stranger came into a room where a mother and a toddler, between one and a half and three and a half, and came in, and then the mother left. And... We studied how did the child react when the mother came back. You know, you you wonder, like, does a child become angry at the mother when she comes back? You left me here with a stranger. Is the mother, is the child unfazed by the mother leaving and coming back? Totally relaxed with the stranger. Is the mother angry and dismissive and, or anxious when the mother comes back? So this was the first step in studying attachment. Actually, it was the second. John Bowlby was the first. So Mary Ainsworth was the second. But it, it, it added a tremendous amount of information to the study of attachment. And it's blossomed into a whole field of study in this world of psychology. So we were... Very glad to get Howard and Miriam Steele on our show to talk about their book, The Handbook of Attachment-Based Interventions by Howard and Miriam Steele. And one of the beautiful things that we discovered was that insecure attachment can be reversed. Miriam was talking about working with adopted children who were you know, taken from hostile, violent homes. You would think a one-year-old exposed to hostility and violence, and it would scar them for life, and that they wouldn't trust human beings for the rest of their life. And that, that does happen. It does happen. But 
by and large, the adoption studies, the longitudinal adoption studies, show that no, actually, in, in as little as six weeks, anxious child coming from that environment can feel and learn to feel trust and become a securely attached child. Tremendous ramifications for the lifetime. So we're going to be talking some about that somewhat today uh, with a little bit of a twist. Well, when you said that, it made me think of some of the research we did uh, with a woman, Diane Poole Heller, who's written a book about attachment, and she talks about the relational blueprint, that we have a blueprint in us to relate. So that's kind of proof of that, yes. that a child can be in such an unstable environment, but somehow there's an innate understanding or right. blueprint to relate so yeah. it's it's kind of how we can you know bring that out right you know, and what about possible. animals you know re, you know ejected from the herd and then invited back or allowed to come back in some ways you know we can look at the yeah. bond the natural impulse is to belong right mm -hmm. is to be accepted in this pride this family whatever it is yeah it's safer right and so even if you're you're ejected that the the animal can come back uh, even more so in humans, even more so. Yes. Well, it's how, you know, I've I've been around horses a lot and I'm really curious about them. And one way that a mare will discipline a foal is push them away from the herd until okay. they get what they did wrong. Really? And come back with their head bowed. Mm. And then they'll be welcomed back in. I mean, it's quite disciplinary, but it's really saying, this is your place. This right. is, you're going to follow what I say. I'm going to push you away from the herd. <laughs> okay. You'll get really scared and you'll realize your right. mistake. And then they come back. Right. You see and what not welcomed. belonging to does to a very young, mm -hmm. developing yeah. creature, yeah. human or otherwise. And I think the mistake that we often make as human beings is that we, we take it personally. You know, mm. the mayor isn't taking it personally. She's just like, no, you need to you need to settle down over here and figure it out. Right. But you can come back. I'm not going to take it right. personally that you did this, yes. you know, that you behaved this okay. way. It's not I don't take it personally, but right. it's just not going to no, right. You can't do that. And then they come back. But the, So that raises a point when the rules are very clear of what, you know, it takes yeah. to belong or not to belong. If you violate the rules of this and we're not going to let you belong here. But Until if you, you you're right, but but if you yeah. violate the rule, learn your lesson, and then come back, yeah. then you're allowed to belong. But if yeah. not, but and but one thing humans can do is they can kick you out and not invite you back, right? right? So if you're a child who grows up in this violent environment, yeah. you you might not want to be invited back. I'd rather be adopted, thank you, so that I can know what it feels like to belong. Yeah, well, there's that, but it, the humans sometimes you have to go back. And that yes, sets up the right. whole sort of complex trauma, complex PTSD that we see a lot. Yes, yes, yes. Where it's like I had to go back into the den of foxes when I felt like a right. white rabbit, you know? Yes. And I had to do what I had to do. Right. So the the beauty of technology in 2021 in this book, the Handbook of Attachment-Based Interventions, you know, is really they, – they talk about a chapter where um, – they're videotaping mothers with their children and giving the mothers the opportunity to see when they're disconnecting from their child, when the child is feeling unsafe, what the mother might do better to create a sense of security and a secure attachment with a child. A tremendous uh, advantage. And they also get to see when they do it right. Correct. Correct. 
Exactly. And that's maybe even more important because right. so often parents will just be overjudging themselves, yeah. thinking that they're all bad when actually they do yes. do right yes. things, yes. like good things. Like they can see, oh, yeah, that's you yes. really engaging or, you know, relating to that child's experience. And one, and the last point is that they pointed out that, okay, now we have all the research. We know it works. Now we need to take it to the people. We need to take it to the governments. We need to take it to the schools. We need to take it to individual parents, um, deprived uh, neighborhoods, deprived areas, mm-hmm. et cetera, you know, because this has lifelong ramifications. So, yes, attachment theory is one of the top five, I think, it's in big. terms of psychology and what – psychologists and therapists need to know about and we we want to take it to our audience like how do you feel did you feel safe growing up and if you felt safe more often than not your chances are you have what's called a secure attachment or did or were you anxious or was your parent was your mom anxious or disabled in some way or your dad or the environment disorganized so that it'd be impossible or very hard to imagine a child feeling safe consistently. Right. So their nervous system, you're, you're an expert on the nervous system. And the same, well, what does a, an insecure environment do to a young person? What does it do to their nervous system? Oh, it just, it really confuses it. It's very confusing because here are, you know, individuals who are supposed to be taking care of you and helping you, you feel very vulnerable as a child. And yet the tables can be turned. You don't know what's going to happen next. The nervous system doesn't really get an opportunity to really trust relaxation because often in chaotic homes, you'll be relaxed, things will be good. And then suddenly everything changes. Yeah. And it's like, boom, like a bomb just went off. And, and you're like, what, what just happened? I don't know what I did. A child will naturally blame themselves for everything. Yeah. And something, a point that Howard made very clearly is that the child, instead of the child feeling like I have my needs and I'm going to ask for my needs and I hope my needs get met, instead the child starts thinking, what does my parent need? And that's yes. and that's a real shift. Right. And it's very hard when that happens. If I have to take care of my parent rather than my parent taking care of me, it becomes very hard later in life for you to really trust taking care of you or even knowing what your own needs are. Yes, yes, Like yes. you just, you're kind of like empty. Right. Like I don't know who I am or what I need or what I want. How many people out there know that? How many adults are walking around not knowing what they need yeah. and are ready to serve other people's needs but mm-hmm. not their own? Exactly. So you bring up a really very important point. So you could be securely attached and still, you know, take care of your parents, still mm-hmm. be on the lookout to take care of them. Yeah. So and we it, we want to echo the point that most children, seventy about seventy percent, are securely attached, which mm-hmm. which gives them a fighting chance. Let's say. Yeah, it was good enough. And and the other thirty percent have to find some nurturing somehow in order to reverse this. And sometimes it takes place in an actual adult relationship. It takes all the way thirty forty years that somebody actually finds out. Wow, I'm really not that capable of maintaining an intimate relationship. I don't like him home all the time or her home all the time. Uh, I'd rather they go away, you know. Yeah. Um, th- this is called the avoidant 
attachment style that you don't know it until you're actually in a relationship that I'm actually avoiding closeness. Yeah, you keep it at an arm's length. You like, keep it at arm's you length. Stay and, over there. And you have you might have this romantic relationship to get it started, and that could last as you know, Harville Hendricks and Helen LaKelly Hunt says for eighteen months typically. But then you find my style is more of tell me what I need to do, I'll just do it, we'll stay in this relationship, but don't try and get too close to me. Right? So this is the avoidant attachment yeah. style. And you yeah. can see it in toddlers. You can see children who do are avoiding when the mother comes back in this strange situation process that the child's avoiding the mother. Yeah, kind of a indignation. Like, you left me. I'm angry. You stay over there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I want nothing to do with you. Yeah. And so the other two is this disorganized attachment style, which is really born out of chaos. If you, If your nervous system is chronically exposed to chaos growing up, you're going to have a disorganized attachment to life and to the world. Schizophrenia is a typical reaction to a, a disorganized attachment style in childhood, a, a chaotic situation in childhood. Right. It's like there's such a deep fear at the core of someone who's disorganized in their attachment. And it's like that that attachment is at odds with survival. So I feel so threatened by the person who's supposed to be taking care of me yet I have to move in and be cared for by them, but I feel like I may die. Right, right. And it's so deep, and it creates such a split in the, Imagine, in the psyche. Yeah, the nervous it's system so there, to... never getting a chance to reset Nasima. Yeah. And the last style is the anxiously attached, insecurely attached child. So the child knows, I need mommy, I need daddy, I need this, but I don't trust them. I don't, I don't always trust them. And so I'm anxious. I have needs. I don't know what those needs are. And I have wants. I need to be loved. But I don't trust these caretakers. So you're anxious. And this, you know, we have this um, form here in Asima that we're going to put on our website. The Somatic Attachment Trainings and DARE Workshops, which has this breakdown of each of these attachment styles and how they show up in our adult life. So one of the questionnaires is for the securely attached, it says, I feel relaxed with my partner most of the time. So do I disagree? Do I sometimes agree? Mostly agree or strongly agree? And there are 10 questions to find out your own attachment style. Um, the avoidant, when my partner arrives home or approaches me, I feel inexplicably stressed especially when he or she wants to connect. This is the avoidant attachment style. Sound familiar? So there are 10 questions for the avoidant attached. Anxiously attached. I am always yearning for something or someone that I feel I cannot have, and I rarely feel satisfied. Rarely feel satisfied. Now, that's a typical anxious attached style. And there are 10 questions for that. And then the disorganized, uh, when I reach a certain level of intimacy with my partner, I sometimes experience inexplicable fear. Right. Like your whole seizes, you, you seize up. Yeah. Right. It's absolutely terrifying. Because again, remember the, what got laid over that blueprint. Yes. Was 
just, I could, this could kill me. And so I must, I have to stay vigilant. Very. So I won't trust. Right. Uh, Attachment theory and attachment styles are very important in psychology, very important for relationships. And again, they have wide ramifications. I like the word blueprint, Nassima, because this blueprint is established early in life. And then we take it into our adult relationships. Well, I'll just to sort of drop in, that blueprint is actually a blueprint of secure attack. Like, like that's our blueprint. Right. And then okay. how they build on that blueprint, that's the problem. Okay. How about an imprint <laughs> on the blueprint? Yes, an imprint or, well, you an, know, it's an, like right. how, like, wait, they didn't build that house. They built another house right. <laughs> with that blueprint. Right. Yeah. So why do we talk about all of this? Why are we bringing this up? We've been talking about this epidemic of loneliness in in America, you know, and loneliness throughout the world. We've been sequestered and quarantined and maybe even will now that winter's here be more so again as we finish out the second year of quarantine and isolation and that We've been talking about loneliness and that um, the loneliness questionnaire that we put on our website, you know, is saying that about over 60 percent of Americans have felt in the last six months a loneliness, a sense of loneliness. Not isolation, but loneliness. And so we um, find the antidote. We've been talking about the antidote and the antidote is connection, is a sense of feeling love and being loved, right? So we want to talk more about how a person feels love. Take yourself. Like, where do you feel love? Do you feel love now? Well, I I, I venture to say I, I think it's more common to not feel loved than to feel love. Everybody wants to feel love, right? Everyone wants to be loving. Everybody wants that um and everybody wants to receive love or do they or do they do you outgrow love do you outgrow the need for love is that a shame if you do well why why right i mean maybe i can be lonely and then not cure my loneliness with loving somebody how about just being friends with somebody can i just Establish many, many friendships. Love, love. What does love do? (laughs) (laughs) You know, is it a requirement now? Oh, you know, my husband comes home. Oh, I have to love him. I must love him again today. I loved him yesterday and last year. I better love him today, right? But what if I don't? What if I have this avoidant attachment style? which I learned when I was very, very young. And I'm just confronting now in this relationship with somebody that I'm living with. And I find out, well, it's not exactly love that I'm feeling every day for him or her. Should I feel terrible? Should I feel guilty? What should I do about it? And is my life then going to be an endless series of feeling guilt and repairing guilt? Feeling guilt and repairing guilt as opposed to really loving or just being friendly, friends, living as friends, right? So this is so complicated. We've opened a can of worms here on The Positive Mind because, you know, we started out thinking, well, love is going to be the antidote to loneliness, and now we're amending it. Maybe it's 
a certain, t- maybe it's just a way of being. Maybe a way of being A, with myself, and B, my, a way with everybody else. And do I have to call that loving? I mean, people say, oh, you know, you can't love anybody unless you love yourself first. Is that true? Do most people learn how to love themselves? Do they take the time? Is it an effort to get to love yourself? How about accept yourself? You have to accept yourself before you can accept somebody else. Is that true? What does really accepting myself look like? How do I know that I'm really accepting myself? You'd be amazed. Most people don't take the time to learn how to accept themselves in all of their colors and dimensions and facets. They're busy, they're busy trying to be what other people need them to be. Isn't that true? Isn't that what people, most, a lot of people do? I mean, think about getting married at 21 years of age, 22, 23. When did I take the time to accept myself? Because when you're accepting yourself, am I accepting my upbringing too? What if, what if I don't accept my upbringing the way I was raised? Should I challenge that? Should I open up myself to question, do I really want to accept the way I was raised? Do I want to use that template for me, as me, going forward for the rest of my life? What if, what if the love I learned as a child, you know, is not acceptable to me? What if that's not my understanding of what love is? I'm not even sure, you know, that I was loved, right? How do I know? Right. <laughs> I, I think that there's, again, like you said, there's a real can of worms here. There are, like, what is a child's perception of love and what's an adult's perception of love? And is it, isn't an adult remembering love from the child's eyes or from an adult's eyes? And how are those getting sort of mixed up? And when you talk about these attachment styles, it is so much the child's, um, the memory of the child that's coming up. And very often when I'm working with people, I'm like, you know, can you, you know, come into your adult self and see your partner as an adult rather than trying to be two two children trying to create some sort of love that never happened for them, Mm. right? Or getting caught up in that, you know, really painful story of, you know, not being listened to or heard by a parent or mirrored or able to to feel who you are as a child, being right. concerned about the parent so much that you then get into this relationship and it's all here. And how can I get some perspective of like, you know, what is it like to to, you know, be across from this person as an adult, not as a child with right. child needs? Right. And a child's perception or understanding of what love is. And for some generations, it was based on, you know, movies and cards and, you know, all these, all these unattainable things on some level. And, and like, it's not, it's not a real thing, but like, like, what is that feeling? What, where does that feeling, like, like that feeling of knowing you're, you're okay and you're accepted and you're acceptable and you're worthy. Yes, so a couple will come to couples therapy and they will recognize, wait a second, I'm not sure I know how to love. We did fall in love. We had love, but 
I frankly, I don't really know that I know how to do it. Um, and of course, we. How did you feel loved as a child? Did you feel loved as a child? And of course, you wouldn't know how to feel love or do love now in your present. So this is like the major hurdle, and the and the breakthrough in couples work when a couple's you know ready to face that. My template for loving was dysfunctional. It really was inconsistent. It wasn't safe. It wasn't secure. It wasn't real. It wasn't reliable. I couldn't trust it. I'm not even sure I felt it, right? And then now I'm with this partner living with them, and I feel something very strongly with them and have felt something strongly, but on a consistently daily basis, I don't know how to do this. Yeah. And there's this beginning, the starting point. Right. And maybe you start to see or hear or or understand the story you've been told about love or the story that you experienced even about love. It's and to recognize it as yeah, this is a this is a story I've been feeling and telling myself. And believe me, you'll come up against so much resistance to dropping that story. To finding your way and yeah that little one that inner child is going to resist that to the max because that inner child wants that love of their parent that they just didn't get and all those all those hurts are in there all that grief so again we're opening a can of worms here on the positive mind because we're basically saying that we like stories we tell ourselves a story that about our childhood that we're making up and all stories once upon a time you know they start with once upon a time the story is once upon a time i felt safe once upon a time there was a time when i felt safe i felt consistently safe i don't know if it was love but i felt safe and and i'll i'll call it love but it was really safe i had a consistent feeling of safety and I'm going to in my adult life match that feeling because I had it consistently let's say was it in my childhood when I was young when I was developing that I need to use that as a template for my future mm-hmm. and the problem is that it frequently is a story that doesn't work it's a story that we're telling that isn't really making me experience myself or my partner or the person I'm with or my daily living like I'm not living a loving life or a full life because I'm busy being trying to match my life to a story right you're not letting it sort of come to you you're trying to make it what you think it should be right based on the story you've told yourself so kind of hard stuff for us to be saying here on The Positive Mind. It's very difficult to think that I'm following a story that I started writing when I was young and I am trying to fit my whole life into this story rather than my story into this life or really feel my this life. And this has tremendous ramifications for my intimacy and my adult relationships And so we think it's really important to bring this because uh, there is an epidemic of loneliness. And if you want to break it, 
and you want to start forming attachments, it might start by going to what feels right, not to what I think should feel right. So we're going to talk more about this when we come back. We're, we're going to take a break. I'm Kevin O'Donohue, licensed mental health counselor. And I'm Nasima Diane Deemer, trauma specialist and licensed massage therapist. And we'll be right back. And, you know, it's kind of like our lives in Kodachrome. We prefer them in Kodachrome. Everything looks better in color than in black and white. Doesn't he say that in the song? In a way, yeah. And And he doesn't want anyone to take that colorfulness away. Exactly. And we might have idealized our childhoods a little bit. I think that might be a little bit what he's saying, too. Well, it's um, they've done a lot of memory research, Nasima. and they're finding that when we have a memory, we're taking our current biochemical brain and placing it on our development brain, our developmental brain. So we're taking, let's say, if you're 30 years old and you're being asked, like, did I have a happy childhood? You know, And you're taking that 30-year-old brain and putting it on... You're 10 year old and thinking, well, when I was 10, was I really happy? And can I remember 
a moment of happiness. And they're finding that in memory research, we're not remembering an experience of happiness. We're remembering a photograph of happiness. So you might be 30 and looking at your 10-year-old self, and you're basically looking at a film, Kodachrome. You're looking Mm -hmm. at a film. This is what memory is. And you're looking at a film, and you're not really having an experience. You're not really remembering the feeling. So if you think about what was it like on a daily basis? What was it like on a daily basis in my home? How did I feel in my home? Like at the dinner table or in the breakfast table or coming home from school or, you know, in the evening hours, in the daytime hours. What was the general, how did I feel? Was it always negative? Was it always positive? What was it predominantly? Right. Where did I feel connected? Did I feel connected? Did I generally feel less con- disconnected? So they're finding with memory research that we're not really looking at the experience. We're looking at the pictures that we create when we're trying to remember something. And the interesting thing that Miriam brought up, Miriam Steele in our last show, yeah. is that they're also doing research where when you recall a memory, recall a picture, that it lights up one part of the brain. And if you try to project into the future, the same part of the brain lights up. So we are really trapped in these stories. Our past is very much dictating how we view the future. Not necessarily what happens in the future, but how we see it. Right. And that's really interesting because it's like, wow. So take your relational history, relational memories. Mm -hmm. You're going to project that on the other person, which is why someone who might be ambivalently attached would have maybe their first reaction to their partner would be arm's length because, you know, I had an unstable relationship with my mother or caregiver. Right. That that's a projection from the past on the future of this connection that's going to happen right now. Right. Even though I I temporarily felt secure and comfortable and in love with you, I'm more likely going to bring the template of the ambivalence that my memory knows about and somewhere along the line project that and put that on this current relationship. Right. Perfect. Right. Perfect. We need to know this. This is really important to learn. Very valuable to learn because... It's a chance to rewrite the story. It's a chance to actually fully experience what I want rather than what my 10-year-old self wants. Or remember Because they are finding, Nassima, with this memory research, that we enhance the memories. We alter the memory. We change it. Because we don't get to the experience, we get to the photograph of what we think was happening. We put it in Kodachrome. <laughs> we, we change the color of the picture. Right. And it's not always, yeah, well, it's predominantly positive, like Paul Simon says. I like it in bright colors, the greens of summer. But um, it's an enhanced thing. So, so think about it, right? Take time. Like, did I feel secure, safe? Was there a consistency in my home? What was that consistency like? Mm-hmm. Um, how was love expressed? Was love an activity? Was it, was it an experience that I had? How did I know? 
Right. And if I didn't know, did I make it up? Because if a, if you live in a home and there's no love there or very little love, that might not be acceptable to you going to bed at night. And so you might make it up. You might say, well, I feel secure here. I don't know. I don't really feel loved here. There's not a lot of loving going on. Or according to me, which is me, my brother or sister or my cousin or somebody else might feel something differently. But the way I feel is maybe it's not here. But gosh, it's supposed to be here. So, so I'll make it up and I will make up the way people are acting towards each other as that being that's what love looks like. Does that seem possible? I'm asking our audience, do you, do you see how that might be possible? Right. Again, go to the experience. Do I have an experience? Do I take your grandmother? Do you remember your grandmother? You remember? You remember her? You remember her, or do you remember the photograph of grandma? There it is. (laughs) Do you remember grandma's hug? How did grandma smell? Was grandma a cook? Did she cook in the kitchen? Do you remember the smell of the kitchen? Do you remember you smelling the smell in the kitchen? How did it feel? How did it feel with your cheek up against grandma's cheek? Or who did you feel safe with? And if you didn't feel safe, how could you feel love? I remember my grandma's hug. Okay. She was a strong German woman. Right. And she had a a big body that was really strong. And I really liked her hug. I'll always remember her hug and the way I just felt really held by her. So was that what love felt like? It obliterated all the other experiences in the home. Theoretically, let's say that was grandma's hug was, okay, this is the best thing in the world. Yeah, I felt really loved by her. Yeah. I felt like she mm. she got me. She was there for me. Right. Yeah. I mean that she was a she was definitely a touchstone for me in a in a busy you're the youngest in a busy family. Have you ever asked a partner of yours to to hug you like Grandma hugged you? I haven't asked. You a haven't, like, and, and that would and, be a good. Mm, that'd be an interesting ask. Yeah. It, wouldn't it be a great exercise? Like right, right. So you know we're 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 bringing all this up because you get to write the story. We're getting to the point where okay, memory is faulty. And, you know, um, love is a big ask. <laughs> you know, that's a big ask uh, to, for a consistency, for it to be there all the time. Right? And then we put tremendous pressure on our world uh, when we claim it's not there and should be there. Or we expect people to have it for us when they don't have it. Or we demand ourselves to have it for people that we claim we love and don't have it in that particular day. It is a big requirement, big ask. And it's even bigger if we're creating it from a template of what we think it's supposed to look like. What it's supposed to be. And so we're in this month of, like, holiday. And am I going to have a holiday that I want to have, or am I going to have a holiday that I'm expected to have? And am I going to feel what I want to feel in the holiday, or 
am I going to feel what I'm expected to feel in the holiday? It's a big, this time of year is a very big ask for people. And it's an opportunity, I think, to, to maybe take some of these questions and reflect a little when you're at the table with maybe your family or loved ones or friends to see, like, what am I experiencing as love? Right now, right. like not from a child's brain, but me as an adult, like here with my family. And it just might be a good way to, you know, whether you Great are exercise. good with your family or not sitting right. at that table, like just let yourself feel it. Yeah. Feel. Right. Feel like where, how is the love here? How is the love being expressed where here? Where is it? Is it? Where is it? Is it? How is and it? How is it not? Yeah. And how is it maybe not being expressed? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I know in my sort of Protestant-like family, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of outwardly expression of it. We didn't always say "I love you" or you know, right? It was a, it was a feeling. I did feel secure. I felt safe. I felt, yeah. you know, we would say "I love you" to the dogs more than we would to each other. That was safer. <laughs> it was safer. Mm. I mean, I'm not, you know, judging it, but it's just yes. there was something. It was easier somehow to right. To be outwardly loving with the well, pets. maybe the dog wouldn't be keeping score. You told me yeah. a week ago you loved me, and now you're look at how you're behaving towards <laughs> well, me. How could that be loving me? I that wasn't our. I'm situation, not saying but, that is, yeah. but that could be. It could be one it of the things with love is this this calculus, like you know, I'm keeping score, keeping the ledger even. Like you know, if you're claiming to love me, you have to do certain things, mm-hmm. and you have to be a certain way and talk a certain way to me all the time. Right. So. Lot of lot of things here, and the aim is to reduce loneliness because we're finding loneliness, you know, shortens your life. It affects your physical health, and we are certainly in an epidemic of loneliness uh, throughout the world and currently in our society. And um, we don't know the the um, health results of all of this, but we do know that loneliness itself compromises the immune system and chronically chronic loneliness shortens your life by three to seven years so we thinking that love is a topic we need to explore and expose so that we can really have that experience of what it is because that will heal that'll cure the lonely feeling absolutely and there are studies that support that People in relationship have healthier immune systems, live longer. You know, it's it's like directly opposing. Right. And really does, you know, make you a healthier, happier human being on some level if you can get to good relationship. Right. How about if you start <laughs> start a relationship saying, you know what? I want to live a longer life. Do you want to do it with me? <laughs> right. All right. All right. Don't <laughs> hold me to this loving thing all the time. I, I mean, I hopefully we will love each other and we do. But let's let's agree to live a longer, healthier life, because if we don't get together, then our immune systems will be compromised and we'll, we won't live as long as we we ob- we obviously could. Well, I think you, you probably do an exercise with your couples that we both learned in learning Imago and Safe Conversations is what would be loving? What what do I feel as loving? Like you write down a list of what does when love I, how feel, I feel like? Loved. How I feel loved. You Correct. write down right. that list right. and have your partner write down that list. Yes. So I feel loved when you bring me coffee in the morning. I feel loved when, you know, you run a bath for me when I come home from work. Or I feel loved when you call me or text me during the day. I feel loved. 
when you do X, Y, Z, right? Yeah. And vice versa. So both couples, both partners do this um, because really they're finding that the embodiment of love is by the doing of loving things. So if I'm doing these, you know, and there might be times when I don't want to do that or something, but my partner is going to feel love, so I will do it. I really would like for us to create the idea that we can create love. We're going to use this big word, love. It's such a confusing word. Most people know what I mean when when, we're, when I say the word. I mean, if you think about the variations of what love is being sold as in our world, <laughs> it's amazing to sift through that and find your own definition of love. I mean, it's right? Quite- I mean, we can look at, at the TV or at the movie screen or even the books and stuff and being told a centuries centuries old story about what love looks like um, and know on some level this is not really what love is but I like reading this book I write, like watching this movie I like seeing this TV commercial or whatever so it's hard it's hard to talk about authentically love and what it is like and we want to for the last eight nine minutes of the show talk about how do I get the real experience of love? We we talked about memory. And if you look at yourself standing two feet from your mom, two feet from your dad, two feet from a sibling, with no words, no words, what do I feel? What am I feeling? What am I feeling? Is love going back and forth between us? What's in the way? What would it look like if it was going back and forth between us? What does it look like when it does go back and forth between us? You know, I I think this topic of memory that we're talking about is really critical. And it's important for people to see it because we can take a memory and picture us standing next to mom, standing next to a friend from childhood or a sibling or anybody, we could see the picture and not know the feeling, not feel the feeling. And maybe most of the time, the feeling that is there isn't necessarily love. It might not be hate or anger or anything. It just might not be anything. And so the good news is we get to, as adults, look at our mind the same way we made a picture of me next to dad or me next to mom. The same way we do that, we can do the same thing in our current world, like Miriam Steele says, look at our future and say, what picture do I want to take? What Do I want it to be a black and white or a coat of chrome? Or do I want it to have a feeling attached to it? Do I really want it to have a feeling attached to it? Or maybe not even a feeling because love is like a feeling and sometimes the feeling isn't there. How about an abiding, consistent attitude? Or an abiding, consistent receptivity? Or an abiding, consistent orientation? Can I take a snapshot of that? Can I, you know, can I enter my experiences with an abiding attitude of some type? 
an approach and a way. How can I, because, you know, love is a bodily feeling, right? It feels good. You know, you sit in a room with somebody and you're in love with them. They're sitting across the room doing the crossword puzzle, you know, and you're in love with them and they're in love with you. It's a good feeling. You're not saying anything to each other. You don't have to, but it's a great feeling. So we want to acknowledge that, that the feeling does exist and it can exist. And if we were to take callers and one day we're going to do this show and be taking callers, I would have like, give me the real feeling. Can you tell our audience a real feeling of love? What does that explain? What, what are you doing? What, or what are you not doing? How are you being? This is, this is the question. This is critical. So I do think this memory research about how the mind works, taking a 30-year brain, and in my case, a 60-year brain, and putting it on a 15-year-old brain. And in these critical moments of my life, did I feel love or feel support? or feel encouragement, or feel... How did I get through? Did I exaggerate? Did you exaggerate? Enhance the picture that was there in order for me to survive. And you may have enhanced the picture in a negative way or in a positive way. We just don't know on some level, like, what really was true. I mean, again, you can poll your siblings and yeah. stuff but their experience is going to be different uh, you know as therapists we see it right away we, we you know we have people that come to our office and say i was really loved as a kid and and yet you know i'm seeing all the evidence of that not being the case and uh, no disrespect and you know we're not judging or blaming anybody here that doesn't help anything but yes we see it all the time and and you know we can, and as I said, when we diagnose people that come to our offices, when we started this series about loneliness, we, one of the questions is, how lonely is this person that's in front of me? And another question is, how distorted is their memory? How do they survive? Because nothing will help you survive better than a story. If I create a story, right, Charles Dickens, <laughs> Charles Dickens about Christmas and Oliver yeah. Twist and all the poverty and, and the creating of a story in order to endure, endure this, the hardship. Nothing works better, not even love. So the story of love. So we think this is really, really important um, because, you know, every day as an adult we get to write it a new story. We do get a chance to create our experiences. And if not, just wait. We can just wait. What is it like for to have love come towards me? I don't have to do anything, but love will come towards me and to trust that. And that's I think that could be the result of that list that we suggested you write. And to be able to recognize when love is coming towards you. Like maybe when your partner does bring you a cup of coffee. Mm. To not diminish it or brush it off, but to let yourself receive that they got that message and they brought you the coffee. Right. And that you're actually being loved. And to take it in. Yeah. You're doing that thing too, that snapshot. Just picture your partner bringing you coffee and picture you appreciating your partner bringing you coffee. And then picture the feeling 
right? See the feeling. So all of that, this is like a, a synopsis of our whole show today. Like doing a loving behavior, take the picture of what it looks like and what it feels like. Um, and then you'll see what we're trying to get to. We're trying to get to real experiences, you know, and after three days, bringing the cup of coffee might not really <laughs> matter as much, you know, or, or, or maybe it will, maybe it will forever. And what happens when it stops? Well, you didn't bring me coffee today. You know, <laughs> what happens then? Right. Well, you find a new loving behavior, maybe, you know, or you just, how do I get that experience back? So here we are. We're talking in this holiday month, right? Because it's like a month. And and we're talking about attachment and loneliness and love and connection and, um, you know, insecurity, insecurity. And uh, we think that um, as adults, and as Miriam said, you know, we are oriented to feel connected, bonded. We belong somewhere at some point. Our nervous system knew security at some point. And knows how to find it and how to, you know, establish security and safety. Yes. That's what our whole biology is geared towards, yes. is towards safety. It's where we heal. And that's the beauty for the work that we do, right, Nasima? We sit with people and we try to diagnose as quickly as possible or get an assessment of where their nervous system is at. And we try to create this container, this place, where they can just look at us and say, well, then this is different than what I know. This is real safety. I can feel really safe here. Yeah. And I can let my nervous system repair here, even just for this hour. Right. Because my nervous system knew this at some point. Now I just need to get a lot more of it. Yeah. We're glad you joined us. You've been listening to The Positive Mind. Um, we will be back next week talking more about love because we're going out of this year talking about love. Um, we feel it's a, a appropriate topic following loneliness. Uh, I'm Kevin O'Donnell, a licensed mental health counselor. I'll see you next week. And I'm Nasima Diane Diemer, trauma specialist and licensed massage therapist. And we would like to thank our affiliates for showing us a lot of love. <laughs> airing us every week WBDY, WRWK KAOS, KPEJ KXCR The Detour and Global Community Radio We also have WFMP in Louisville, Kentucky We'd also like to thank our Chief Engineer Jeff Brady Our Producer Connie Shannon You can contact us with questions, comments or suggestions for the show or sign up for our newsletter at tffpp.org, that's for the Foundation for Positive Psychology.org. Look us up, shout out to us, drop us a line. And Nassima, just that worksheet that we had about uh, attachment style, secure, avoidant, anxious, and disorganized is also on the website, tffpp.org. See you next week, folks. Bye bye.